morning everyone, my name's Jimmy um, and I'll be reading Acts 15 verses 1 to 35. Uh, you can follow along on your own devices or uh, on the screen behind me. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent and uh, as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says uh, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. 
It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch. They were gathered, uh, the church, uh, there, uh, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of the, of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Helped us see in the all ages talk, uh, more isn't always better sometimes. More isn't always better. And sometimes that thinking creeps into the church as well. And it can be a very bad thing. I mean, practically, we might say, if we had more programs and more people, we could do this. Or it sneaks into our hearts. I mean, we operate under this mindset that says, if I pray long enough and hard enough, God will answer me the way I want. If I have more faith, then it will work out how I think it should. Or we say, because of how faithful I have been to God, the rest of my life must turn out the way that I want, because look at all the years of faithfulness I've given you, Jesus. Or it looks like our actions and we sin and we say, God, I'll do all this now because of what I've done, just to make up for it. Now, there is an important caveat here, of course, because um, more is better, you know, growing in godliness. Um, John the Baptist once said, more of Jesus, less of me. Um, You know, the affection from your family, having a meaningful job and having an extra piece of carrot cake on my birthday is actually a good thing. But... Uh, seriously, when we apply that to the gospel, it's a very bad thing. So don't hear me say, oh, I don't need to do anything as a Christian, everything's fine. No, no. Jesus saves you by his grace alone. Put your faith and trust in him alone and then work out what that means day by day. Because that's the issue that's facing the church in Acts chapter 15. According to verse 1, there are some Jewish believers teaching that to be a Christian means you need to become a Jew. And the question is, is that true? And you'll see it takes two robust debates. It takes every single key play in the whole book of Acts we've seen so far to come together and nut this out at the very first church council. Thankfully, the conclusion that Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and Silas all come to, in fact everyone, is found in verse 11. You don't add anything to Jesus. No sacraments or religious works or morality or good deeds or nice thoughts because it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they, the Gentiles, everyone is. Saved from Satan's sin and hell and God's wrath. Saved from a life that only leads to here and now living. Saved from our good works. Saved to the grace and love of God to be made new and given a hope and a joy that lasts for eternity. The question is, as they wrestle with this today in Acts 15, have you wrestled with that as well? Do you believe Acts 15 verse 11, that is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that you are saved? 
And are we a church that believes this and lives this out too? Because the good news of Jesus is that we trust and believe and put faith in him, that he has done enough, that he makes us good enough just by his love and grace. So come and see today why I think this is the most important chapter in Acts, Acts, the whole letter actually, chapter 15 is. And I hope that by the end of today, some of you here will be able to lay hold of verse 11 for the first time and declare that Jesus is the one I will build my life upon by his grace alone. And for others of you that have been living a life that that functionally says Jesus plus something else, well, that you would repent from your good works as much as your sin and simply know and rest in the fact that Jesus has done enough to get you and keep you. Because less really is more when it comes to trusting Jesus for our salvation. So, first four verses give us this big watershed tricky moment in the book of Acts. The claim is, unless you are, you can't be. First four verses, unless you are, you can't be. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So last week we were in Acts 13, And we saw the Spirit and the church send Paul and Barnabas to preach Jesus and plant churches. When we get to Acts 15, uh, the team, the church planting team, is back in Antioch. And they're reporting everything God has done. How God had opened a door to faith in the Gentiles, the non-Jewish folks. And and they're having a well-deserved break, actually. Um, A long, long time has passed since Acts 13 and Acts 15. Now, in that time, these new Christians with little to no Jewish background, are just ticking along in their faith, learning who Jesus is. And then a group of Pharisees from Jerusalem, who are believers, these are believing Pharisees, they hear what Paul is doing, what he's preaching, and they think, Paul, you've missed a few really important key dot points in the gospel message you've gone around, and we need to correct that. Unless you turn to Judaism, Jesus isn't enough to save you. That's what they're adding. I mean, you have to remember at this point that Jews and Gentiles united by faith in Jesus is actually a huge, shocking thing. And some of the Jewish Christians at this moment feel like their identity is being diluted with other people coming in who want to follow Jesus too. I mean, after all, the Christian leaders we've seen here are are baptizing Gentiles, they're eating with them, they're living among them, traveling to them, saying all they have to do to be made right with God is believe and trust in Jesus. I mean, that's a lot to take in for a Jew, isn't it? So the easiest way to overcome it is make all the Christians Jewish. Problem solved. But it's not an excuse for changing the message of Jesus because you find it hard. So serious is this debate. Verse 2 says there was a sharp debate that happened between Paul and these people. It's a dispute, in fact, and it's where we get our English word stasis from, literally meaning standing stop. I mean, this is a big deal. Everything Paul has been preaching, the eternal safety and security of every single person who has believed in Jesus in the last 15 years was now at stake if the Pharisee believer's claim was true that you have to be a Jew. Paul can't go on unless he has clarity. And these people need to be shut down if they're wrong. This is not good news if you have to do something to add to what Jesus has done. Stasis. Because if Jesus really is the center of God's plan for humanity, when he said on the cross, it is finished, it means it's finished. 
really is true. To say be circumcised, it's a reply to Jesus, no, it's not quite done, I'll finish the job off for you because you haven't really, you've done a good, you've gone a good way, thank you for dying, but I'll just finish it up myself. So the question is, who's right? Well, they don't settle it here. Jerusalem's where the problem came from, so off Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to have it resolved. And as they travel back along the way, they stop in a bunch of churches, and they begin telling these churches, verse 3, how the Gentiles had been converted, and the news made them very glad. Contrasting one perspective is another. Jews and Gentiles believing in Jesus together is a very good thing. One group saw them as a threat, and the other group a reason to rejoice. Because faith alone is good news for all people. Jewish people don't need to work hard to attain a righteousness they can never get to. And Gentiles can give up a life of pagan worship, find the true God, meeting them where they're at, giving them grace and mercy. How good is that? And then, from verse 5 to 21, we have the response to this claim in verse 1, that unless you are, you can't be. But actually, unless you embrace only Jesus and cling to Him, you won't be saved. Unless you don't, you won't be. And we have to realize that this is a really tricky, legitimate question to ask. Where does the law of Moses sit with the gospel proclamation of Jesus and obedience to Him? Where does it fit? What does it mean for Jew and Gentile to be united but be so different? So... In verse 6, they met together to discuss and consider the question. The apostles and the elders, they're asking, is this true? Is this a hill worth dying on as a church? What are the implications if this is what we need to be doing now? And doesn't the same thing happen today between us and other churches and people online? Different views, different opinions about Jesus and following him, don't they exist? And what do you do to arrive at a conclusion, at an answer? Well, in Acts 15, in verse 2, 3, 6, 7, and 19, they consider and discuss the question. They spend a lot of time trying to work out what this means. The discussion they have is what we might call theological humility. They're discussing with a theological humility. What that means is they want to discern, what is God up to here? I don't want to dictate to him. What's God actually doing? How do I make sense of that? Because if, if God's doing a work here, I don't want to get in the way. And if only more of us had a theological humility today. If only more of us spent more time discussing and listening instead of saying, we've got it right, I think we'd be in a different position. Because after all, when you actually sit down and nut up the issues, you get a resolution because we see a theological humility, but a sharp approach to what they believe about Jesus. Humble, but sharp on what actually matters. Look at verse 7. It says, after much discussion, Peter stood up and he said, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. Four things bring about a resolution to this tricky issue. Peter reminds them, Peter rebuffs them, he reveals, and then Paul reports. Peter reminds them of God's decision to bring the Gentiles to faith. Acts 10, Cornelius. God accepts Jew and Gentile the same, not discriminating between race or ethnicity. He reminds them of that. Then he rebuffs the absurdity of trying to get anyone to obey the law. Hold on, we've had it for all these years. Have we done it? Oh, we haven't. So why are you going to put that on the Gentiles who've never had it to suddenly tell them what they have to do? This ridiculous team. We could never do it. So why do you think they could? He rebuffs. Then he reveals the principle God's operating on now. It's actually grace through faith in Christ. When it says we are saved, that captures the threefold complete salvation that Jesus offers us. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. It means no part of our salvation do we need to revert back to some sort of law-keeping. And then, after um, revealing how God's at work, Paul and Barnabas get up in verse 12 and report all they've seen God do. This is really helpful. What they do is they look at what God is doing to inform their theology at the moment. What do I mean? Well, life is a genuine source for our theology. Because life is where belief is experienced. Life is like a workshop where theology and God is tested and tried and screened and stretched and poked and prodded. And what they're doing is resting with what God's up to, what Peter and Paul are reporting back, and, and they're seeing we've been praying and fasting and worshipping and, and, and proclaiming Jesus and reading the Bible and going on mission and having fellowship with one another. And their theology of this God's landing in the experience of everyday life. It's an important witness because that's where life and theology connect here. Because we do interpret life through Scripture, not the other way around, which is what James does. He gets up and he reads Amos 9, 11 to 12. He says, the words of the prophets are in agreement. Are in agreement. After this, Amos said, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent, talking of God. Its ruins I'll rebuild and I'll restore it that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even as all the Gentiles who bear my name say the Lord who does these things. What's happening is in agreement with the prophets. What they've been witnessing these last few years is exactly what the Old Testament prophets said would happen. It's been what God's been doing since Genesis 12 and calling Abraham, you'll be a blessing to all the nations. And Amos looks forward to a time when God will rebuild David's line in such a way that Gentiles and everyone in the earth will see and know the Lord. James says belief in Jesus is the rebooting and the restoration of the nations to God, and it has nothing to do with circumcision. The conclusion that he arrives at? God's doing a work consistent with who he is and what he's always been up to. The experiences of Peter and Paul, the Gentiles receiving the Spirit, the argument from Scripture, they've all collided to inform their theology, which is why James says... In my judgment, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles turning to God. 
Sorry to those of you who want to preach circumcision. God's not interested in adding what you want to add to Jesus. Salvation isn't difficult, actually. Life has enough problems of its own and hardships, and Jesus came to give our souls and hearts rest, to restore us, as the prophet Amos said. So, if that's the point, let's help the Gentiles now live Jesus-honoring lives every day. Not to burden them, but to give clarity on God's will and how to maintain unity with the Jews. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. Because, you see, Christianity no longer says, you do your truth. The Christian's been saved to say, I'll do God's truth. Listen to what James and the believers decide and work out in verse 20 and 21. Let's not write to them about the circumcision thing. Instead, let's write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, first of all, this is not another law. What James is doing is shifting the debate so that they won't get tangled up in their old pagan life. He's outlining new social relationships between two people groups. Because Gentile believers and Jewish believers are more united than a Gentile pagan, you see. Which means if you keep living a life in the pagan world of temple sex and idol worship that had lots of meat eating and lots of interacting with blood from dead animals, you're going to make it really hard for your Jewish brothers and sisters to maintain unity with you. Because God's law in verse 21 is still read every week. It's good, but we just don't need it for salvation. It's helpful to live a holy life. See, what James is doing is saying, guys, don't go to the places where immorality and idolatry is all around you, to the idol temples. That's the location. Think of it this way. Team, God has changed your taste buds. Food, sex, bodies, what we worship, they're used for Him and His glory, not your own now. They're big parts of Roman and Greek life. And aren't they big parts of our life too? Sex, food, bodies. We define ourselves by who we sleep with, our performance, our body, our diet, the places we visit. But James says to these Gentile believers, turn away from the pagan view of these. Value God's vision of a flourishing life as far more glorious. His point? Don't act like a pagan if you're identified as a Christian. Don't live in a way that makes anyone stumble in the church. Because we want the Gentiles to flourish as believers. That's what they're seeking to do. In fact, when they write the letter, they say, brothers, sisters, team, we're one. We love you to bits. Here's how we think you can live the best way that honors and loves Jesus. And you know what happened when they heard this letter? When they heard all of this in verse 31, they read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Jesus is enough. The four requirements James and everyone outlines, they're not a burden. It's never a burden to remain faithful to the one you love. That's how they understood it. Because yes, Christianity does have ethical implications, a vision for life that's not always consistent with what others think. But what we need to see today to remind ourselves with is what Jesus commands is not a burden. He came to give us rest. His yoke, his way of life, he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, it's light. Moreover, when someone turns to God, don't make it difficult for them. Don't impose bits and pieces that look and smell like salvation when really aren't, because it's so simple. Repent, believe, trust Jesus, because less is more when it comes to trusting Him. 
So let's be rallied around that cry. May people hear the gospel and be encouraged by the good news that's contained in it. Because it's the same today. We really do believe in Acts 15 verse 11, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. And that's still just as true and beautiful right now as it was then. But as I finish, I want to push that a little bit more for some of you. Because some of you here, when I've said it's about believing in Jesus, have said, yes, Luke, I hear that. It's by my faith instead. I get that. But I want to challenge you that you've got the right idea here as well. Because the opposite of your works is not your faith. The opposite of your works is Christ's work. You don't jump from my works to my faith as if God's impressed by a mental work instead of a physical one, you see? It's not Jesus plus my faith that God accepts me. It's just Jesus. And sure, I trust in his finished work alone, but I don't slip into thinking because my faith is in him, he accepts me. No, no. Faith is small as a mustard seed, remember? It's the object, not the size. I heard an illustration this week that describes what I'm saying, and a few of you would have been there when we talked about this. Um, But there are two ways you can look at Christianity. The first is to imagine that your heart is a boardroom. And in this boardroom, there's all these chairs around the table, and each one of those chairs, there's a different self sitting on there. Your finance self, and your worry self, and your your pleasure-seeking self, and your family self, and your work self, and and your entertainment self, they're all sitting around the boardroom. And they make up your life. And the wrong way to say, to see Christianity in Jesus is to say, team, we're really not getting along. This is a mess. Life's crazy. We need to bring Jesus so he can have a seat at the table. Jesus, come and have a seat at this messy boardroom. I need you to speak what's going on into this restless heart of mine. And that's the wrong way to see Christianity just by adding Jesus to your life. That's not the gospel. The right way to see Christianity is to say, Jesus, I fire the whole boardroom. You are the CEO. No one else. You take control, you rule, and you reign. I kick him out. And then Monday morning, you fire the boardroom again. Jesus, it's about you. And then Monday night, I fire the boardroom again. And when pleasure self comes up, wants to sit at the table, Jesus, get him out of here. No board members, just Jesus. He's the CEO in this picture. Can you see? Can you see the difference? That's why the four things James mentioned at the end, they're actually really good and they're not salvation issues. They're an important way to live out salvation. Another way of saying it is what Paul does years later In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Good works for God's glory. Good works because of Jesus' work for us. Living so that no one stumbles or trips. From the smallest to the biggest, it's for God's glory. That's the catch cry of Christianity, for the glory of God. Don't you want to live by that too? I know I do. And yes, I fire the boardroom too. Don't think I've got this all together by any means. I have board members I don't like. Not leadership team, you guys are great, but in my head of my life. 
So I finish on this. A church sign got graffitied a while back, a few weeks ago, and um, I went out there and cleaned it off. But I, I had no idea what was graffitied. It was gobbledygook. Um, sorry, Tagger, it didn't make sense to me. And then I read later that day, after I cleaned it off, of another church that had their sign graffitied. But you could read what the word was. On their big sign, it said, you're welcome, and they graffitied it at, on it, and it said, if. You're welcome, and they graffitied the word if on the sign. Acts 15 says there's no condition on the welcome of Jesus. Jesus places no condition on his welcome of you. Just hand him all of your sins so he can take it away. And that's the beautiful message for six years, week after week, we've been preaching here at Grove. I'm going to keep doing that for another six years, and, and by God's mercy, another six after that. Not moving from our focus. So people can hear about Jesus week in and week out. Not more burdens, not do better, be better, try harder. Just Jesus as your CEO. So let me close with a prayer from Martin Luther that perfectly captures this whole thing. So let's pray, and then after I finish praying, um, band, come on up and lead us through the next song. But here's, here's how Martin Luther saw this and prayed. O Lord, I do not deserve a glimpse of heaven, and I am unable with my works to redeem myself from sin, death, the devil, and hell. But you've given me your son, Jesus, who is far more precious and dear than heaven and much stronger than sin and death and the devil and hell. And for this I rejoice. I praise you and I thank you, O God, without cost and and of pure grace, you have given me this boundless blessing in Jesus. Through him, you take sin, death, and hell from me and do grant me all that belongs to him. Amen.